Today we have with us Dr. Jamie Smith from uh, Calvin College where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Baker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and World View. He has offered, authored uh, numerous books. Uh, kind of the one that's our focus today is Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, we're going to talk specifically about education and how uh, uh, formation is important, mm -hmm. um, more so or along with uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. information. And so we're going to kick that off with just, uh, could you give us in a nutshell um, your thoughts on Christian education specifically? Could you address the question of formation versus information? Yeah, so um, th this is kind of the thesis of desiring the kingdom. And, and it's, um, okay, so here's the frame. Education is not just or even primarily the dissemination of information. It's actually the formation of the whole person, including the affections. So think of it now that this is going to be a very caricatured way of sketching it, but imagine that I think too often the working model of education is, uh, and by the way, on behalf of both professors and students, so students unwittingly sometimes operate under these conditions as well, that, that education is primarily about sort of depositing ideas and information and the right beliefs and so on into intellectual receptacles, uh, and which is then the, way we the reason why we assess education by seeing the extent to which you can repeat those answers back to us. Do you know what I mean? They, you know you're in a bad class when the only way of your being assessed is your ability to repeat back what the professor said to you. That is a very, very reductionistic model of education because now it shows overwhelmingly the goal was to teach you what to think and it was uh, um, assuming that in effect, in effect it assumes that you're this kind of thinking thing, right? You're this kind of brain on a stick and education is now disseminating ideas, depositing them into your intellectual receptacle and now you're supposed to regurgitate them. Um, I, find that, I find that a problematic assumption about education in general. I think it's especially problematic if you imagine that's what Christian education is or what discipleship is. By the way, there's a lot of versions of church discipleship that effectively do the same thing, right? Um, so what I'm, what I'm trying to argue is that it's not that ideas are unimportant, it's not that thinking is unimportant, it's just that if human beings are the kinds of creatures that God has made us to be, as holistic creatures who aren't just thinking things but also are defined by our loves, our longings, our desires, our habits, then education has to be um, not just informative but formative. And what that means, an education has to be... Um, a kind of encounter and immersion and experience that is not only convincing your intellect, but it's recruiting your affections and reforming your heart habits, so to speak. So it's, it's really education as habituation. I can't remember if I'm stealing from future questions you're going to ask me. but uh, That's fine. Um, we'll, we'll work right um, uh, Think of education now is the formation of the person, and I, I would say primarily forming what we love. So that if you're really going to be, what a Christian education would be, is uh, um, our inculcation into Christ-likeness because actually this education is recalibrating our hearts. It's reshaping what we long for, what we love. 
um, thinking is going to be part of that, but it's going to be a much more uh, um, holistic encounter experience. Yeah. So what does that look like if you're a professor, you're teaching a class, mm. you've, been, you've been taught to disseminate information. That's true. So, grad grad yeah. school is one big long immersion in absorbing information and then spinning it back out and then thinking being a teacher is doing the same thing. Yeah. So how do you implement that into a classroom setting? Yeah, so, uh, um, so can, I'm going to zoom out from your question a little bit. Okay. So mm -hmm. if this sort of holistic formative model is the case, a first implication actually is that education is happening in all kinds of spaces that aren't classrooms. Right? In other words, one thing that happens in this model is that um, the classroom is not the only venue for education because it's not the only venue for formation. So in, in one implication, uh, and then I will come to the classroom, but one implication is that actually the entire educational institution needs to be invested in this project of formation which in many ways looks like inviting us into rhythms and repertoires of practices that aren't just something that we do, they're doing something to us. And ideally they're practices that are rehearsing the gospel and the biblical story in such a way that they are sort of seeping down into our bones. And, and what that means is then there is no extracurricular in the Christian educational institution, there's only the co-curricular. There's, the question is, how do all of these spaces pull me into the story of God and Christ reconciling the world to himself? So, okay, so, so with that said, maybe, maybe we can talk more about that. Within a classroom, what, what might it, how might the classroom change if I don't just think of my students as brains on a stick? A um, couple ways. One, for example, I think Framing practices for a classroom are always doing more than you realize. Well, one, of the, one of the implications I always emphasize is that micro-rituals have macro-implications. Okay? Micro-rituals have macro-implications, especially when they're practices that you start, like do over and over and over again. Rep, rep, by the way, there's no formation without repetition. So if education is formation, that actually has to mean you have to come around to embracing the repetition of practices which maybe we need to talk about. Because Protestants, tend, we tend to be a bit allergic to repetition. Um, unless it's a chorus that we're going to sing over 14,000 times. Uh, um, <laughs> one time in our chapel uh, at Calvin, we sang um, uh, Psalm 40 by U2, which is, which is Psalm 40. How long will we sing this song? And our, our particular rendition of it that day, we sang How Long Will We Sing This Song? A long time, <laughs> to which my, my provost leaned over one time. He said, I think that's probably long enough. <laughs> anyway, okay, uh, repetition. Oh, so, um, for example, I'll give you one example, Mike. So I, I never, ever begin a class without prayer. Now, that's, I'm almost nervous to mention this as an example because that can seem like a very pietistic way of trying to sanctify the classroom. That's not the way I'm thinking about it. I think how we pray at the beginning of class is setting an ethos, an environment for learning in that space. Now, first of all, it's a practice of openness and dependence in learning, 
right? It's basically saying, in order for us to learn, we need to avail ourselves of the Spirit's illumination of one another. So often my prayers will reflect the sense that we are all here called and we are called to learn from one another. So it's knitting a community together. And if you, and so a, a prayer isn't just this pro forma check thing that you check off to show that we're you know Christians. It's it's actually a practice that you're inviting a classroom into, and you are in that even if the prayer is one minute long, you are actually framing now an ethos of the space into which we now begin our learning, and I, I think that can be really significant, especially if you think of now if every class begins with prayer. In a way, I also have an opportunity to write a kind of not write enact a kind of curriculum in the prayer, right? So the prayers are going to reflect. And sometimes what, what that's going to look like is actually teaching students how to respond to tragedy, right? So I'm teaching a course in God and philosophy where we're going to deal with the problem of evil. The most important question in my class the day after Parkland is how am I going to pray? How am I going to pray about that? Because I'm modeling something about how we respond to tragedy. And actually, to be very honest, I kind of broke down and said to the students, one of the things that makes me angry and sad is I don't know how to pray. Because no matter what I pray, some partisan party is going to think I'm either ignoring their, their concerns or violating their rights. And I'm, I'm really angry that I don't even know how to pray in the face of this, because what else could I do, right? Uh, for me, that's, that's education, because you're modeling something. Um, but I've done other things too, like, um, am I talking too long? No, no, you're, okay, you're okay. doing great. Okay. I, I only um, have five questions, which is okay, okay, half right, of good. what I normally do. Great. So, yeah. uh, just as another, and by the way, I do not take myself to be an exemplary teacher by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just sharing some stories. Uh, I teach at an uh, undergraduate level, college, university level, and I teach philosophy. And uh, one semester I was teaching a senior seminar in French philosophy. And you might be surprised to learn that actually one of the sort of a, a theme that emerged in contemporary French philosophy was the theme of hospitality. So Jacques Derrida, Emmanuel Levinas, all these French philosophers were talking about hospitality. So I wanted to teach a course on, on French philosophy and I used hospitality as the theme. But then what I did was I actually I incorporated service learning into the course so that the students then also served at homeless shelters, at actually three different homeless shelters in downtown Grand Rapids. So part of what happens now is there is an enactment, and a full-bodied enactment that's now integrated into the course, and it's, it's mutually illuminating. So on the one hand, what happens is the, the reflection on the conditions of hospitality from French philosophers shapes how they enter this homeless shelter and participate there. Similarly though, the act of being part of this homeless shelter that's ho uh, showing hospitality is now deepening their sense of investment in the questions that the philosophers are asking. And by the way, one of the coolest outcomes of that was basically a bunch of privileged white kids uh, go to serve at this shelter and they think, oh, well we're gonna go show hospitality. But in fact, what they experienced was being welcomed. The homeless, that's their home. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's their space. You're, you're, you might have some sort of authoritative role to play, but it's not your space. It's their space. And so it was, it was really a great sort of uh, example. Uh, I have a friend who teaches a, a nutrition course in a, in a nursing program. Um, and 
it's also interesting because the nutrition course is in the second year of the nursing program when everybody is competing to get to go on into the third year of the nursing program. So it's a very hard course and not everybody is going to come out of that year going on into the nursing program. So it's a very competitive environment. And she decided to organize uh, the entire course around the Eucharist, or around the Lord's Supper. And uh, um, both gave them ways to think about their immersion in the Lord's Supper in church, showed acts of hospitality and eating together, and it just totally reconfigured the learning community amongst those students who otherwise would have felt all this competition anxiety. So there's, there's lots of, um, you and I were talking about David Smith, and I, I've already talked about some of my colleagues or friends here. David Smith is an educator uh, at, also at Calvin College where I teach, but like he, I'm just a philosopher who freelances. He's literally an expert in pedagogy and education. And um, he and I co-edited a book called Teaching and Christian Practices, which is sort of a series of case studies of people from across a range of disciplines trying out different practices um, in their classrooms. And it might, it might spark, spark kind of um, creativity. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, you hinted at this in one of your answers, talking about how it's changed the um, how formation should change the expectations, perhaps, of students. Yep. Could you expound yes. upon that a little bit about how students should approach education yeah. in that way? So, um, all of us, when we come into a classroom, implicitly and tacitly bring with us expectations that have built up from all of the other classrooms we've been in. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, when you, when you come to Southeastern and you show up in a, in, a, in a classroom, in a way, your primary and your elementary and high school educations were themselves the formation of your expectation of what counts as education, what counts as teaching. Even though you've never been a teacher, you've, you've tacitly absorbed a set of repertoires that you think are acceptable range of what counts as teaching. So then if a prof comes in and tries to do something more creative that isn't just downloading information into your intellectual receptacle, but is like recruiting you into these rhythms and practices, you, you'll probably have a tendency to think, what, you're, A, you're wasting my time. What, 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 is, what are we doing? Or you'll get very anxious because now you won't know, how do I get an A in this class? Do you know where that, that's where, where I teach. That's the question. It's like, how do I get an A in this class? And uh, um, that shows that we've all been kind of deformed in our expectations of what education is. So I think one of the things, if students captured this vision, then what they should be open to and looking for are um, communities of practice across the institution that are are really opportunities for them to give themselves over to repertoires of the spirit that is doing, the, the, the conviction here is that these practices are always doing more than you're thinking about, right? The whole point is that there's a kind of learning that is going on under the radar of the notes that you're taking and the bullet points on the slide that you are absorbing um, understandings but also habits uh, that are that are making you that are meant to be making you more Christ-like, even if you're not making them. They're not the kinds of things that you would answer on a test. Uh, uh, tests and exams are a tip of the iceberg of what I care about happening in a course. 
Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just that it's so hard to assess these other things, and it takes patience, and it's a long game. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't expect you, I don't expect a student to be a, a paragon of virtue because they had 15 weeks in one class with me. I, in fact, I might expect the opposite. But uh, um, uh, do you know what I mean? It's, it's an overall sort of project and, and package that we're talking about. So I think students should... Um, um, themselves look for sort of repertoires, rhythms, and practice. I think thinking about education in terms of rhythms is really significant. Thinking about it in terms of disciplines and practices. Um, I can't remember what, if you're going to, because there was one part where I wanted to talk about this. Is this the one that we're on right here? Yes. Um, but it may be this one that you're getting into. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, and, and I, I want you to ask that. perfectly fine. No, 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 yeah. no. I'm going to let you ask. Uh, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which um, don't let your prior educational experiences constrain what you think counts as education. But by the way, there is another side to this story, which is once you understand that education is formation of the whole person, it actually means you're being educated in all kinds of places that aren't schools. And, and educated badly, like deformed. Uh, in those cultural liturgies, cultural rituals. And so sometimes, maybe, maybe another thing students can do is they, they can sort of enter in with intentionality to their Christian education by also becoming aware of the deformative educations they've received from the cultural liturgies that they've given themselves over to without realizing it. Yeah. Now I'm going to insert a question here. Great. Because <laughs> um, you mentioned Christian education. Yes. So uh, what, what advice would you give to students, especially, I mean, we interact with students who are not seminary students, so what, how can we encourage Christians um, in our ministry to approach their quote-unquote secular education or non-Christian education uh, in, in a formative way? That they're currently saying, in, yeah. you mean? Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That they're currently in, or, I mean, they're, they're obviously being formed by people who are not, uh, not oh, yeah, Christians yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. So what advice and encouragement can we give them? Can you ask that me? Ask me that one more way. I just want to okay. make sure I'm answering the right question. You're asking the wrong person. That's a different. No, way. I don't. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, uh, maybe essentially, we, we've we've talked about in Christian education. Yeah. We're and so I'm yeah, picturing so, kind of a Christian educational right, institution. Right. So how would that how would that work in a non-Christian non -Christian? education? Yeah. yeah. So okay. Um, first of all, every educational institution is formative. Mm -hmm. It's a question of whether it's honest about that and what it's forming people towards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, um, Stanley Hauerwas down the road at Duke says, every university is a moral formation. The question is, what are the morals? <laughs> um, that, that's what Tom Wolfe's I Am Charlotte Simmons, the novel about North Carolina, is about. Okay? Uh, so I will say that I, one of my, I guess, concerns about, um, I think it's a little bit hard for public institutions to pull off intentionality about the formation because their very definition of public means that they can't name and identify the good to which they are supposed to be forming students. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that there's a way in which the, the myth of secularity and the myth of neutrality that goes with that uh, actually undercuts. I, I don't think you have formation where you don't have the conditions of a tradition 
that specifies the good and invites you into the practices and a story that inculcate that in you. Right, so you need to be sort of honest about what the good is, and I think public institutions struggle with that. That said, I think those who are in public institutions um, can nonetheless find sort of cognate communities of practice that can be centering them, informing them, and shaping them. This might be an argument for the significance, say, of campus ministries and so on, mm -hmm. that that center and form us in such a way that so that now. At least I'm being formed so that when I step into this classroom or this curriculum or this lab, um, my reasons for learning and what I'm looking for and what I'm opening myself up to are a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. In, in Britain and Canada, I'm Canadian, we, we had a model. It's literally impossible to pull off in the United States, but uh, um, in, in these um, Commonwealth contexts, you would have, say, the University of Toronto, and then alongside the University of Toronto are Trinity College, Wycliffe College, Emmanuel College, Victoria College, which are all religious colleges, St. Mike's. They are all religious colleges of the University of Toronto. So everybody's enrolled in the University of Toronto, but now you are actually centered in a learning community um, that is much more intentional and explicit about the good that it's pursuing. And I kind of think it's, like in my best world, ideal world, Calvin College where I teach would be a college at the University of Michigan. So that I'm both in the mix of the marketplace of ideas, but we're also centering people in that story. There's a great, I'll make one plug if I could. I edit a journal, a magazine called Comment Magazine, and about three or four weeks ago we interviewed Randy Boyagoda who wrote a biography of Richard John Newhouse, some of you might know, but he's also the principal of St. Co Michael's College at the University of Toronto, and he talks a lot about this dynamic, actually, yeah. Okay. Um, so what advice would you give to students that are at an institution that does not approach education? I think we've kind of answered this question a little bit. But, yeah, no, I want uh, to say more about it. Yeah, um, but education, they, they solely approach it as information download. Yes, yes. Um, how could they approach it or shift uh, their behaviors in class to uh, um, to change their educational experience to foster formative practices yeah. in their education? Yeah. yeah. So, so I want to I want to talk about this a bit because I think it's important. And I think, by the way, this might be a special temptation for grad students. Maybe maybe not just, but uh, um, there is a the 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 kind of folks who are attracted to graduate study are weird. Okay, so, like, like, so it's a self-selecting crew, and, um, and part of what that means is we already are, we're there probably because we are thrilled with ideas. Do you know, like we, that we're self-selecting. And then I also think that there's a certain kind of, um, uh, so here's what, here's what I think is a danger. Uh, you can end up becoming monstrous in this sense. Remember, monsters aren't just, monsters aren't necessarily evil and terrifying, they are just not human. <laughs> and so what can happen is you can become, so I, I saw this actually in myself even as an undergrad uh, before I was married. I, I would basically live my life in the basement of the library and never talk to another human being and didn't care, you know, would, would pause to eat maybe and uh, uh, would basically just live in books and, and would live in my head would live in my head, but that is not being human, right? 
And so the deformation that comes from, from buying the thinking thingism is that you actually neglect all kinds of other facets of who you are and what it is to live a full, flourishing life. And so one of the things I would encourage students to do is to realize that being a student is a calling and being a student is a season. It does not define you. It's not who you are. It might manifest things that you're passionate about, but I think it's really important to like be human. And so one of the practices that I would actually most encourage students, I think one of the most significant educational practices that you can give yourself over to, to be formed by a Christian education, is to invest in a local congregation. Right? So think of the life of a local congregation should be a community that is animated by gospel practices and, by the way, should also be multi-generational. And just by giving yourself over to the rhythms and practices of being a normal human being in that congregation, there will be formative aspects that change now how you learn in the educational institution itself. I would then also encourage, so this is mostly about, I, I think students have a lot of control over what you do outside of the classroom. Right? You know, in a way, when you show up in a classroom, the prof is kind of setting the ethos of the class. You have responsibilities, you have contributions to make, but you're not the agent in charge of the classroom. But you are, you have a lot of agency outside of the classroom. And I think, um, what would it look like for dorms, or not, residence halls, to say, be animated by ryth communal rhythms of morning and evening prayer? Right? Or what does it look like for us to look for sort of gospel storied rhythms that are immersing us in the story of God and Christ, reconciling the world to himself, that now is creating this ethos even outside the classroom so that now when we go into that classroom space and come back from it, we're, we're actually still being formed in all of those spaces, right? Um, the spiritual disciplines, uh, Dallas Willard kind of stuff, right? To, to, to adopt the spiritual disciplines is to honor the holism of who you are. Um, we gravitate towards sort of quiet time sort of practices, but that's because that's mostly thinking thingist. It's mostly about what, what, what word am I going to learn today? Whereas all kinds of other disciplines are actually habituating you on registers below the intellect, and I think that's important. Uh, so I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because one of the things that I experienced in talking, I've been here a long time, mm -hmm. way too long, um, maybe, maybe not long enough, it's, I don't know, <laughs> it's up for debate, but uh, one of the things I see in students is they talk about their quiet time and mm -hmm. they talk about how Which is good, yeah, I, I, I didn't mean yeah. to poo-poo that. No, 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 no. I, but I'm saying, but like, uh, what I, the connection I'm making is with if we're only approaching it as a intellectual yes. discipline. Yes. Um, the, the thing yes. that I hear from students a lot is that it's I'm just I'm analyzing it a lot. I'm uh, oh, you know it's very stale. Yes. 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 So how do you? Yes. Uh, what would you say to a student who's mm, that's who, a great who's question. only approaching it as an intellectual? So in other words, now they can't sort of get out of critical analytical mode right. even when they are reading the Bible devotionally. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great... Um, I actually think for that person, one of the things I would recommend, just this is a very concrete recommendation, is a spiritual discipline and practice called Lexio Divina. Does anybody know Lexio Divina? So Lexio Divina is... And, and if, you are, if you are analytically inclined, it will frustrate you. Because now what you do is you take sort of, you know, a, a, a small chunk of scripture and you are going to read it multiple times 
in a contemplative mode, not in a, look, look it up, there'll be guides for how to do this. Oftentimes it's four times through, and, and um, there's a lot of silence that's involved. There's a lot of prayer that's involved. And so now it's not reading the Bible for information, it's reading the Bible to be read by it. And, and in a sense for it to unearth in you things. Um, maybe another thing too, I, I've noticed this is, um, when you go to church and you hear a sermon, your job is not analysis. It's just the word. Yep, you might be able to do it better. Probably. Not your job at that point. You're a worshiper, and you are there to be encountered by the Word of God, and it's not your job to be in analytic mode. Because sometimes people ask me, it's like, oh, man, how do you, how do you be happy at church? if you're... It's like, I, I literally never think of it, because I, it's a totally different speech act, almost, you would say, right? It's a, what's, what's happening there is I, I'm a learner at that point. I'm just encountering the Word. So I think there's a lot of postures uh, that that can change. I, I think that's a really good question, by the way. There's something about, I, I would also say doing things communally is often a good corrective to our sort of, when you when you fall into intellectualism, it also often turns into a kind of social atomism. And um, one way to break out of that, I, I would say, by the way, when I did my PhD at Villanova in philosophy, um, the thing that saved my life and without question my marriage, was the fact that every Friday night we were part of a small group with a bunch of people who weren't academics. Very, very important. We were in a small group with a bunch of people who weren't academics, and we all got together with all of our screaming kids, and we, somebody made soup, and then we you know, meditated on scripture together, and I heard people say ridiculous things about the Bible. Um, and but that and that wasn't the point. Like getting it right almost wasn't the point. It was about the practice of a community of gospel fellowship where I was being accountable to others. And it was um, and I was not a philosopher on those Friday nights. And I think now I think it changed how I was a philosopher on Monday, but I wasn't a philosopher on that night. Uh, and I, I think that was important. Since we're in a library, I'll recommend a resource for Alexio Divino, which Great. is uh, Praying the Bible. I'm going to forget who it's by, but Fantastic. we have it here. It's short. It's a great read. Fantastic. Um, help change that particular aspect of By the way, I, I don't know myself. what yeah. all y'all's... All I've been in North Carolina for a long time now. Uh, uh, I, I don't know um, what chapel looks like here, but I also think... Um, so, okay, since I don't know what chapel looks like here, I can say this and not know if I'm staying on anybody's toes. But I think one of the, one of the uh, unfortunate things is if chapel is also captivated by thinking thingism. If chapel's just another lecture hall. Whereas chapel, at, at, at our at our college, uh, we, we have chapel every day. And uh, on Thursdays, we do contemplative prep chapels. And really, it's an opportunity for students to try on different disciplines and practices. And Lexio Divina is one of them. So it'd be fun to, in a way, you could almost invite students into a practice like that by doing it communally in a, in a chapel context. Yeah. So our last question, and we've kind of already addressed this, but this gives you a chance to mm -hmm. uh, fill that in a little bit more. But how can students pursue formation outside of the classroom? Mm. And then I would also say, uh, you, you talked about, well, I'll tell you what, we'll come back to that. But deformation, uh, how, how the, the, um, yeah. the 
formation outside, yes. usual deformation, yes. how to spot that and how right. to Right. Yeah, so I mean, I do that. think yeah. maybe part of it is, part of it can be a kind of wake-up call where you realize, so remember, if education isn't just about the, the fueling of the intellect, but the formation of the affections and habits of love and longing, then in fact what's happening is you have been educated in all kinds of spaces <laughs> that, you didn't, that aren't schools, stadiums, um, racetracks, uh, um, malls, uh, do you know what I mean Th those are all those are all pedagogical spaces because they've been tacitly teaching you what to love. So becoming aware of that then maybe reframes what's at stake in what you're doing in your education. But the other thing I think is um, looking for um, rhythms, and by rhythms I mean ongoingness of practice, not one-off events, not high high holy mountain retreats, but like the plodding regularness of rhythms of communal gathered, uh, and then I would say um, scripturally normed disciplines and practices as a community. Now, by the way, I think you can have formative practices that don't always have to feel churchy. So, so uh, um, in other words, you don't have to say you don't always have to have a Bible study to make it a formative practice <laughs> or to feel better that this is spiritual. Uh, um, uh, in some ways, just cultivating friendship is countercultural today. So, and insofar as I think friendship is integral to learning, uh, the more that we can cultivate practices to do that, the, the better.